Welcome to Helping Challenging Children. This podcast is for adults who want to understand why children behave the way they do and how to support them to increase their ability to self-regulate and to become more independent. My name is Dr. Pat McGuire. I'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician who and I have been working with these children for over 30 years, and I can tell you that with the right support, they all do great. So enjoy these podcasts, and hopefully you learn a little bit each time. Greetings. Today I'd like to talk about culture and parenting. Culture, by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is defined as the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious or social group. It is also defined as the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as our diversions or way of life. And these are shared by people in a place or time, such as popular culture or Southern culture. Culture has a definite influence on how parents determine how they should raise or parent their children. Cultural norms about parenting practices typically influence how children are raised. These norms affect what beliefs and values parents teach their children, what behaviors are considered appropriate, and the methods used to teach these values and behaviors. There is a consensus among surveyed parents that children should be obedient and not talk back. They should show respect for adults, parents, and elders. They should be polite, have good manners, and not interrupt others, particularly adults. They should share, be honest, and do well in school. But are all cultures the same in how they approach having and raising children? Are some cultural beliefs harmful to the healthy physical and mental growth of children? What about the culture or parenting in the U.S.? Is there just one style or many? Well, the answer to that last question is indeed there are many culturally determined styles of parenting due to the diversity of population we have. And despite common beliefs, it is not as simple as white versus people of color. People who identify as white come from numerous countries with their beliefs being very individual. People of color also come from numerous countries and they also have their individual cultural beliefs. We have to realize that we can't demand the way of one population over another as far as parenting, since there is no proof that one is superior to another. It is gonna be even more difficult for the white population to advocate for their parenting style as our country continues to diversify. The National Research Council and Institute of Medicine in 1998 estimated that by the year 2030, children in families of European origin will make up less than 50% of the population under five in the US. Just to update you, according to the 2020 census, these children are now at 60% white with no Hispanic or Latin population included. So we're very close to what they expect in the next 10 years. According to the book, From Neurons to Neighborhoods, which was published in 2000, these demographic realities suggest both promising opportunities 
and potentially sobering challenges, the opportunities offered by a multicultural society that is cohesive and inclusive are virtually limitless, which includes the richness that comes from a broad diversity of skills and talents and the vitality that is fueled by a range of interests and perspectives. The challenges posed by a multicultural society is that it's fragmented and exclusive, and that can be very daunting, including the wasted human capital that is undermined by prejudice and discrimination, and the threat of civil disorder precipitated by bigotry and hatred. The changing demographics of early childhood population in the US present both the opportunity and the challenge of a great social experiment. The outcome of this experiment will be influenced to a large extent by how human diversity is addressed in the rearing of children. The foundations of relationships and the fundamentals of socialization are culturally embedded and established during those early childhood years. Consequently, further research on how young children learn about and develop attitudes toward human differences will help to elucidate both the roots of categorical discrimination and the origins of social inclusion. As a backdrop to this discussion, we need to look at how different countries are currently rated for raising children. According to US News 2021, the top countries for parenting are number one, Denmark, number two, Sweden, number three, Norway, number four, the Netherlands, and number five, Canada. The United States is not even in the top 10, coming in at 22 this year and 18 last year. So we're actually worsening. These countries were rated on the following attributes. They're caring about human rights. They're being considered family friendly. Their environment was for gender equality. They were seen as being happy, having income equality, being safe, having a well-developed public education system and a well-developed healthcare system. We know that the last two are areas of concern in the United States and definitely it's gonna keep us down for a while until we get that taken care of. The story of the cultural investigations of parenting is largely one of similarities, differences, and their meanings. In an illustrative study in the 2012 journal called Parenting Science and Practice, they looked at cultural approaches to parenting. They analyzed and compared natural mother-infant interactions in Argentina, Belgium, Israel, Italy, and the United States. Differences existed among the locales recruited from in terms of history, beliefs, language, and child-rearing values. However, the samples were more alike than not in terms of how modern they were, urbanity, economics, politics, living standards, and even their ecology and climate. They looked at the frequency and duration of six maternal child giving behavioral domains of nurture, physical, social, didactic, material, and language. 
and five corresponding infant de developmental domains of physical, social, exploration, vocalization, and distress communication. Mothers differed in every domain assessed. Moreover, mothers in no one country surpassed mothers in all others in their base rates of parenting across domains. The fact that maternal behaviors vary significantly across the modern, industrialized, and comparable places underscores the role of cultural influences on everyday human experiences, even from the start of life. For example, U.S. mothers are often thought of as being highly verbal, but the U.S. mothers actually fell at the bottom of our five cultural comparisons. There are cultural specific influences on parenting. For example, the United States and Japan are both child-centered modern societies with equivalent high standards of living and so forth. But U.S. Americans and Japanese parents value different child-rearing goals, which they express in different ways. American mothers try to promote autonomy, assertiveness, verbal competence, and self-actualization in their children. Japanese mothers, however, try to promote emotional maturity, self-control, social curiosity, and interdependence in their families. This reflects the overall prevalence of European countries to be more individualistic and assertive while Asian, African, and Hispanic cultures look more to nurture social emotional maturity and interdependence. When looking at parenting, there are two types of demands necessary and desirable. A necessary demand is that parents and children communicate with one another. Normal interactions and child's and children's healthy mental and social emotional development depend on it. Not unexpectedly, communication appears to be a universal aspect of parenting and child development. A desirable demand is that parents and children communicate in certain ways adapted and faithful to their cultural context. The results of the World Health Organization study found that across cultures, maternal responsiveness, which would come under necessary demand, was associated with social competence and fewer behavioral problems at three years, increased intelligent quotients or IQ and cognitive growth at four years, school achievement at seven years, as well as higher IQ and self-esteem and fewer behavioral and emotional problems at 12 years of age. In addition, the report found that for infants born with low birth weight or under other adverse circumstances, responsiveness of the mother had protective effects on the overall health and psychosocial development of the infant. Alternatively, lack of caregiver responsiveness was associated with various behavioral problems and delayed cognitive development. A sample of 100 children from low-income families in the U.S. revealed that maternal unresponsiveness during infancy predicted aggressive and disruptive behavior at age three. It is noted that unresponsive parents receive more intense demands from their infant, thus creating extra burden for the parent to cope with. This behavior begins an unhealthy cycle of coping and interaction, ultimately leading to behavioral problems for the child as they develop. 
These types of interaction cycles often frustrate the mother or lead her to direct her energy elsewhere, only exacerbating the problem. Most parenting styles tend to endorse attachment or bonding with a primary caregiver. This increases the child's chance of survival and promotes the social and emotional experiences needed for healthy adult relationships. Most European countries have been following that model, but this hasn't always been the case. A look at parenting in Nazi Germany and how subsequent generations have struggled to bond with their children raises questions about what happens when societies engineer beliefs about parenting that are starkly at odds with the propositions of attachment theory. German historians and psychologists have written extensively about the works of the Nazi educator and physician Johanna Heyer, whose baby care manual, The German Mother and Her First Child, was published by a prolific Nazi publisher and sold around 600,000 copies by 1945. Heyer's Manual is most notable for parenting strategies and beliefs that contradict the attachment theory. To some extent, her work can be accurately described as anti-attachment. She said that babies should be separated from their mothers for 24 hours after they are born, and they should be placed in a separate room. This was thought to have added benefit of protecting the baby from germs of those outside the family, It was also said to allow the mother the necessary time to recuperate from the stresses of birth. This separation, Herrera instructed, should continue for the first three months of a baby's life. A mother could visit the baby baby only for strictly regulated breastfeeding, no longer than 20 minutes, and she should avoid playing or dawdling around. Herrera believed that such separation was a critical part of a baby's training regimen. If a baby continued to cry after it had been fed on schedule, if it was clean and dry, and if it had been offered a dummy, then dear mother become tough and simply leave her to cry. Herrera's understanding of babies was that they were pre-human and showed little signs of genuine mental life in the first few months after birth. Crying, she believed, was simply a baby's way of passing the time. She strongly advised mothers not to carry, rock, or attempt to comfort crying babies. It was suggested that this would lead babies to expect a sympathetic response and ultimately develop into a little and unrelenting tyrant. Attachment theorists such as Klaus Grossman have suggested that the Nazi child-rearing movement reflected a set of social, historical, and political circumstances that probably ensured a generation of young children who were raised in the absence of attachment security. If you look at the U.S., according to an article in Slate 2014, it shows that Germans were a very large part of America, and German is the most frequent language spoken in many parts of the U.S. after English and Spanish. And this is a lot of the West and the Midwest. From my own experience in pediatrics for over 30 years, I can remember various experts promoting similar interactions, including no on-demand feeding, but rather the feeding had to be on a precise schedule. Many parents were told by their own parents and their pediatricians not to hold the baby too much 
or it would get spoiled. It makes me wonder if the German influence found in many parts of the US were influential in these edicts too. Attachment theorist Klaus Grossman argued that such large scale national neglect mirrored what was found in Romanian or orphanages under Nicolae Sasakow's rule from 1965 to 1989. Here, many children were brought up in terrible conditions where violence was used to humiliate and control on a daily basis. As a result, children who grew up in these Romanian orphanages were shown to have a dramatically increased risk for major problems. And these were problems with insecure attachments, sociability, indiscriminate friendliness, and a significant difference in brain development. For these children, a lack of love and connection was found to be associated with anatomical differences in key regions of the brain. A major difference though, is that Hauer's ideas reflected organized intentional ideology cloaked in scientific credibility, as opposed to being the byproduct of conflict of displacement. So what does that have to do with our US culture and parenting? Basically it shows that there is no one style due to the hundreds of cultures that make up our country. We should not push one type or style of parenting over others with a few exceptions. Parenting styles should be child-centered to create healthy attachments for infants and children. A necessary demand approach should be used so that parents and children communicate with one another. To remind you, this is normal interaction which allows for children's healthy mental and social emotional development. Communication appears to be a universal aspect of parenting and child development, which is why it is considered a necessary demand. There needs to be supports for parents since many nations encourage the sharing of the child in order to develop several attachments. This is considered necessary for the child in the unfortunate case that the primary caregiver is unavailable due to death or other events. And we need to work to achieve parenting rankings like the top countries in the world through focusing on the following, caring more about human rights, working to be considered more family friendly, making an environment for gender equality, increasing our ability to be seen as happy, having income equality, being safe, having well-developed public education systems and well-developed healthcare systems. My call to you this week is to look at where we are in terms of meeting the needs of our children. Think about how you were raised and how you are raising your children. Are you achieving the necessary demand? Are our communities achieving the necessary demand? What agencies and organizations can you support so that our ranking internationally can move up to the upper levels instead of the middle of third of the countries? If you enjoy going deeper into understanding our children and the factors that affect their growth and development, check out my subscription podcast, Digging Deeper to Help Challenging Children. I cover two topics each month, airing on the first and third Wednesday. The latest episode covered ACEs, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. To subscribe, just go to my website, www.com 
helpingchallengingchildren.online slash store and click on the product description for the podcast, Digging Deeper to Help Challenging Children. It is only $15 a month and you can cancel at any time. So until next time, give your kid a hug just because they will wonder what you are up to.